You are listening to a broadcast of Dublin First Baptist Church, Pastor Cameron McGill in Dublin, North Carolina. If you'd like more information about our church, please visit us at www.dublinfbc.org. That's www.dublinfbc.org. Now let's join the congregation of Dublin First Baptist Church and the Lake Church to hear from God's Word. When we look out at the 21st century church, is there faith? And is it fictional? Or is it functional? Since not everybody in here has been to see me and visited me lately, I'm going to take you to my front porch. I decorate my house much like Cracker Barrel. And if you were to drive by my house, this is our yard light. I like old things. And forever people are pulling up in front of our house and just stopping and staring. It's rather unique, no doubt. And without exception, people will look at that gas pump and they will ask me this question. Is it real? (laughs) Can you get gas out of that pump? And is it really 39 cents? Because that's the price on the pump. And, and, And at first I just want to shake my head in disbelief that they would ask such a ludicrous question sitting on my front porch, you know. But I always answer the question the same way. They say, is it real? And I say, no, it's just for looks. As I was preparing and thinking about this message this week, my mind kept going back to that little phrase, it's just for looks. You see, if you were to diagnose carefully my pump and you were to disassemble it, you would see that it's tapped into nothing. It's just sitting there above the ground. There are no roots. There are no tank underneath it. Nothing to draw from. If you were to take the covering apart, you would note that there's no guts. There's no innards. There's nothing inside that makes it work. Billy Graham said that he feared that over 50% of those that occupy space in our churches today have never experienced a true encounter with the living God. And they they have something that appears to be faith. And they're going through the motions. And they even enjoy the experience. But there's nothing deep within them. There's no tank springing up of living water that they might draw from daily. There's no, no, no guts, no heart, no substance to their belief system. It's all just for show, just for looks. I really had to do some thinking on that this week because I thought, is it possible that people would actually come to church? And and by the way, I fought even preaching this message this morning because you're the cream of the crop. You're not sitting at home hunkered down saying we can't get out in it. You're not at home out playing in it. You're here. And um, so what I want you to do is take this message and and, and make it go viral. I'm not sure what that means because I'm not a techno, but I think that means put it out there. All right? And, And share it with folks if you can, but... Is it possible that that people can come to church week in and week out and absolutely be lost as a ball in high weeds and not even know it? Yes. There is something very special about the church experience. And think about it. The church experience for many of us ties us back to our growing up. Maybe you come to church and you experience and you reminisce about the good old days. When you would come to church and sit like I would with your grandparents in the pew, 
I'm convinced that's why so many people love the traditional songs of our faith. And I do. Not just because they love the melody and they love the words like I do. But they love the experience of singing the songs they've sung for 50 or 60 or more years. And it makes them feel good about the whole experience. Someone told me a couple of summers ago, I just can't worship in the Family Life Center or the gym. And I said, why not? And they said, well, all my life I've worshiped in a church and this just doesn't feel like church. Beloved, if church to you feels like stained glass windows and chandeliers and fancy pews, then it just might be that you're missing the mark. I am grateful today for the stained glass windows Because the last place I just preached for an hour has huge glass windows and everybody was looking at the snowstorm. It's hard to compete. I said, y'all, I know it's hard to compete with the snowstorm. And they said, it's just so pretty. And I said, what, I'm not? (laughs) But we do get caught up in the traditions and it feels good. It feels good to come to church and to do these things and to come around like-minded people who have the same values and the same traditions and know the same language, right? You know, I go into meetings all the time and I hear people calling one another brother and sister. I was in a meeting the other day and a man stood to pray and it was the most beautiful thing I've ever heard. I mean, he's got the King James down to, you know, just just perfectly. We love the church experience. But this morning I want us to look at something very simple from the Word of God and ask the question, does our faith work or is it just for looks? Focusing on the faithfulness of God's followers. Father, in these next few moments, Lord, before we depart this place and go play in the snow, God, I pray that we might do business with you. God, I've got nothing profitable to say or share this morning, but I do pray that you might speak through your servant and through your word. Lord, these simple truths of what it is to have a faith with substance, a functional faith. Father, if there's anyone here today that has no faith at all, oh, identify that, I pray. And anyone here that might possibly have a fictional faith, God, that it might become so very evident. And before this service comes to an end, it might become genuine. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me give you just by way of introduction a little glimpse at the New Testament church. In 2,000 years, the church has unfortunately become something that Christ never intended it to be. We are living in a day where many churches feel that we must entertain an audience rather than equip an army. The fact of the matter is that we are called from time to time in the Word of God, the saints. You know, we sing about when the saints go marching in. We talk about coming into the company of the saints. But the fact of the matter is that we do not come to church week in and week out to exalt sainthood or to express our saintliness. But we come to be equipped as soldiers of the cross to make a difference in the world in which we Live, And in order to do that, we must have an authentic and a genuine conversion experience. Before we get to that, I want us to look just at a few uh, things to consider about fictional faith. What it is to have a faith that is without substance, a faith that is without hope, a faith that is based not on the authority of the Word of God, but a faith that is based on feelings, maybe an experience. Three things very quickly about fictional faith. You remember at the encounter of Jesus and the woman at the well, Jesus was sharing about her life and 
told her the things she had done and was introducing living water. And she said, wait a minute. Wait a minute, Jesus. I am a woman of faith. Did you know that? She was the one that brought faith up. I am a woman of faith. And she said, in fact, my people had been worshiping right here longer than you people have been. And Jesus says, right, you are. You are a person of faith. You have been worshiping. But the thing is, what you have been worshiping, you do not know. Whom you have been worshiping, you do not know. You have never had an experience and an encounter with living water that will flow up within you and be an overwhelming source of encouragement and life daily. She had no answer for that. You see, fictional faith is not the absence of worship, but it's the abstract of worship. Three things. Number one, fictional faith is marked by narcissism. You've already heard this. You can do this for me probably. Narcissism, what does that mean? Sarah's pulling double duty. Narcissistic faith is, is saying, my faith is all about me. Now this is so dangerous today. We're living in the 21st century that is the name it and claim it, blab it and grab it philosophy in, in many churches and in many uh, denominations and in sort of a movement, you know, the prosperity movement. You know, if you will have faith, then you will get all of this stuff. And that begins to, 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 to breed within the mind and the heart of a person. Well, hey, this whole thing of the cross was really about me. And I love the song. Miss Wanda used to sing it uh, years ago over and over. I just loved it. It blessed my heart. I um, mean, it, it talked about when he was on the cross, I was on his mind. And I agree with that. But sometimes we put ourselves in such a position that we say that we're actually more important than the cross, more important than his purpose, more important. It's all about us. Here's the thing, narcissistic faith says that everything that goes on within my faith ought to benefit me. Everything that goes on within the church ought to benefit me. Uh, the, the church ought to function around making me happy and keeping me satisfied. The pastor ought to be the kind of pastor that I want him to be. And the teachers ought to teach that which I want them to teach. And, and everything that goes on, I should be the center of all attention. Now, of course, we would not come out and say, well, that's me. <laughs> that's where I am. But we understand that it begins in a very small way. In Acts chapter 2, there was a revival going on and the church had begun. And man, thousands upon thousands being saved. And by Acts chapter number 6, they were murmuring and disputing because everybody wanted the pastors to do things their way. Philippians chapter 2, Paul warns the church about this. You know this passage. He teaches about having the mind of Christ. And he says this, "...let each esteem others better than themselves." In other words, we're to favor one another. We're to care more about one another than we do ourselves. We're to put other people's feelings and other people's preferences even above ours. The narcissistic faith is based solely on feelings. I can be happy today and absolutely miserable tomorrow in my faith because something did not go my way. I believe that we are selling a false product in our country today that says if you accept Christ, everything is going to be great. Jesus says, if you follow me, mother and father may turn on you. Sister and brother may turn on you. Words will be spoken against you. Vicious words for my name's sake will be spoken. And blessed are you when that happens. He says, if you expect to serve me, you better go and expect 
persecution. Now, wait a minute. I read a book that I got at Walmart on the prosperity gospel, and it wasn't in there. It said, if I accept Christ, every day is going to be a Friday. Every day I'm going to have more money in my account than I did the day before. Everything's going to go my way. It's just going to be wonderful and awesome and great. And the devil's saying, gotcha. Because here's what happened. That mentality and that narcissistic faith, you will accept and you will follow Christ so long as everything is going your way and the moment all of those promises fail you, the moment you lose your job, the moment that teenager goes wayward, the moment that doctor calls with that diagnosis, the moment that disaster happens, you're going to say, wait a minute, I did not sign up for this. This is not what I bought into. This is not what I'm basing my belief on. We have a narcissistic faith that is absolutely fictional. Number two, not only a narcissistic faith that is fictional, but also a dead faith that is fictional. James chapter 2, verses 17 and 18 say this. Faith without works is dead. Now, now don't misunderstand me. The Bible is very clear that I am not saved by my faith, but it is a, a gift of God. It is through grace and His mercy and His unmerited favor that He saved me. So I cannot earn my salvation. However, if I am saved, there is going to be some substance to back it up. It is one thing to tell your spouse you love them. It is another thing to show them. It is one thing to sign on the dotted line of word of a contract. It is another thing to keep the contract. We understand that there has got to be some substance behind our faith. When I think about dead faith, I think about over in one of the campgrounds at the lake, people have very small yards. Some of you have places there and people will go out and they'll plant pansies in the spring and, and, and little, uh, uh, you know, begonias and all these things. And, and the soil over there just isn't real good for growing much, y'all. You know, blueberries about all. And within just a month or so, they're, they're pulling them back up and they're trying something else and pulling them back up and trying something else. And you always watch and by about the second or third season, people have given up growing anything over in that soil. And they go to Walmart. Back in the back in the, the arts and crafts section where they've got the artificial flowers. And they get them some little uh, styrofoam blocks and they put them in their planters. And they take those artificial plants and they just poke them in there. And for a few months, they're beautiful. I mean, you can have the most beautiful flowers, daisies in December. I mean, it's great. But you can ride by those places week after week after week. And here's the deal. There's no sign of life. There's no sign of health. There's no sign of maturing or growth or, or, or new you know, buds springing up. Now, now, they look good for a season. Now, now, follow me on this. They look good for a season, and we look at that, and we think about what the Bible says about dead faith. Dead faith will have no maturing. There's going to be no discipling. There's going to be no maturing in their faith and growing in their faith. Year after year after year, they're just trying to maintain. But inevitably, what happens because there's no maturing and growth as age and as the storms of life take their toll, Many times those folks who were once shining examples within the church become a distant memory of the church. Why? Because there's no, no life. Here's the thing. Those artificial plants, they can be poked into those little styrofoam things, but they never take root. There's nothing that can nourish them. There's nothing that can feed them. There's nothing that can cause them to, to grow. And so many times we say, well, I need Jesus. I need a little religion, so I'm going to plug into the church. I'm going to get planted in the church. But they've never been planted in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
There are no nutrients. There's no light. There's nothing to, 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 to cause maturity or, or, or discipling to take place. And the church has a responsibility to aid in that process, but it must begin with salvation. The second thing about the dead faith, it never reproduces. It never reproduces. I read recently, the statistic is 90%. Now get this, 90% of, of, of so-called born-again Christians, 90% have never led one person to Jesus. Is it possible that those folks are not able to lead someone somewhere they've never been themselves? Right? If you were to say to me, how do you get to Abbotsburg from here? I can get you to Abbotsburg. You know why? Because I've been there. I've been there. I'd have bought the T-shirt, but they didn't have one. You know? If, if you were to say to me, how do you get to, uh, to Fort Caswell? I can take you right there, pull you right up in front of the place. Because I've been there. But there's a whole lot of places. I couldn't even begin to tell you how to get there because I've never myself been. And you, you wonder, why is it that so few Christians are reproducing I mean, can you imagine if you ran a business and you were in the business of sales and you hired salesmen and after a year you, you brought all your salesmen in and said, okay, salesmen, how are sales? And they said, what do you mean? We hadn't sold anything. But hey, you ought to see us when we go out on sales calls. We look like salesmen. We've got our, our, our pocket cards ready and our calendars that we give out. I mean, we're, we're just right. And we keep our, our company vehicle, you know, spit, spit shine because we want to look good when we're out on call. And we're really doing our part, boss. You'd be so proud of us if you could just see us. And the boss would say, but wait a minute. You are supposed to sell. Beloved, we're not selling a product. We are literally in the business of seeing souls saved. And all that we would stand before the King of kings and Lord of lords one day empty-handed and saying, I'm sorry, but we have no one that we're bringing to you, but we looked good while we did nothing. That's tough. I realize that my number one job as the pastor of this church is not even to preach the word is not it to administer the staff or, or, or you know, cast the vision and all those things that a pastor is to do. But my number one responsibility is to lead the charge in seeing lost people become saved people. And I feel that I've woefully uh, been, been slack in those duties over these years and that is an area that I must become more intentional in. Realizing that every person that we lay, lay eyes on has an eternal home already set and, and you and I must be the one championing the cause and sharing with those who are lost the name of Jesus. Dead faith. Narcissistic faith. But thirdly, empty faith. Empty faith. Now, what does that mean? Well, to narcissistics, all about me. Dead faith, I've got nothing to show. But empty faith, empty faith is that hollow, that, that, that hurting, that when the choir sings about glory and other people seem to be you know, enjoying the experience, I get nothing. When the missionary comes and shares their story about children accepting Christ in a faraway land and everybody else is weeping, there are no tears in my eyes and I'm saying, what's up with this? I feel no motivation to serve. I hurt so deeply and I feel I have no confidant, no paraclete, no helper, no one to come alongside of me. The things of my faith that I talk, I do not feel. 
Empty faith is marked by hollow hearts. I can assure you as a believer, we are not going to be immune from tragedy. But when we face tragedy, we realize we do not face it alone. Hard heads are a mark of empty faith. I don't see things from a spiritual perspective. Did you know that? There are many people that occupy place in the church today that absolutely see nothing from a spiritual perspective. I'm going to say this and please don't misunderstand. We are living in one of the most spiritual generations ever. People are spiritual in so many ways. Spiritual in their political and social views and and spiritual in, I mean, worshiping everything under the sun and even the sun. But the people of God seem to be growing less and less and less spiritual and more and more and more carnal. I'll share this and get it off my chest and move on. It's been my great privilege over the last year to serve as uh, on our DOM search committee and to sort of stand in the gap for 39 Southern Baptist churches in this county. I am so ready for that experience to be over. I mean to tell you what. I've realized that some of our so-called church people in this community are some of the meanest, rottenest, orneriest people I've been around in my life. You're talking about cold. I've been called everything but good buddy over the last couple of weeks. You know? And you just wonder. And, And sometimes you share something spiritual with people and they roll their eyes as if, well, that doesn't make any sense to me. Maybe they're as empty as my gas pump. I'm not trying to be an elitist or say we're better. I'm just telling you there's so many folks that claim the name of Christ, but when you look into their eyes, there seems to be nothing there. Nothing. Hollow hearts, hard heads, but one more thing, hurting lives. One of the greatest things about being a believer and having real faith is knowing that no matter what we face, we have an advocate. We we have the Holy Spirit of God. We have the indwelling presence of God. And I will never be alone. I will never be empty. I will never be hollow. I will never face one moment of life without God's presence guiding me. Fictional faith. Let me move very quickly and I'll close with functional faith. Functional faith. Mountain-moving faith. Matthew 17, here's the story. Jesus is passing through. A man runs up to Jesus and says, I need your help. It's in the King James Version. This is the Prince Cameron Version. He says, I need your help. I have a son and he's sorely vexed. He's demon-possessed. He's a lunatic. He's out of his mind. He falls into the water and nearly drowns and we have to rescue him. He falls into the fire and gets burned and we have to rescue him. Jesus, I need your help. By the way, Jesus, I took my son to your disciples and they did nothing. They looked at me with blank stares and expressions of absolute perplexity. They knew not what to do. And Jesus rebuked his followers and said, Guys, how long have you been with me? How long have you followed me and watched me work? Do you not have any faith? And then he brought the, 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 the man brought his son. The, the young man was healed. He was cleansed. He was set free. And then Jesus turned his, his attention back to the, the disciples. And he said, Guys, a mustard seed. And they knew what that was. It was the smallest seed known to man at that time. If you just have that much faith, 
then you can move mountains. Now think about that. Now, if we're not careful, we misinterpret that. It's, oh, good, good. That means I only need to have a little bit of faith. No, what he's saying is it's not about the amount of your faith or even the measure of your faith, but it is about what your faith is tapped into, what your faith is in, right? It is about the confidence that we have in that which we believe. So I just want you to think about this very quickly and I'll close. What does biblical faith look like? Individually and for the church. Number one, it is a master-minded faith. I like that. I thought that was kind of cute. Master-minded faith. Do you remember back about 10 or 20 years ago, there became this huge fad of wearing these little bracelets that simply said or had the letters WWJD. What did that stand for? What would Jesus do? And everywhere you went, you saw people wearing them and identified them as believers. Athletes were wearing them on interviews, identifying their faith. It was a wonderful fad. And you say, well, that's how we ought to live. What would Jesus do? And then I'm going to do that. What would Jesus say? And I will say that. What would Jesus think? And I'll think that. All these things. But how do we know? Well, by looking at what Jesus did. He did not change. He has not had a a personality change. He has not had an altar uh, of ego. Nothing has changed. He is the same person now as he is then for all eternity. So we look at the mind of Christ and we look at the attitude and the actions of Christ and we want to be master-minded. Remember Philippians 2, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. Matthew 6, 33, the Bible says, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and then everything else will be added unto you. Folks, as we, I know you may not think it today, but as we enter into the next chapter of the life of this church and begin a construction of a, of a larger facility, for a sanctuary facility, we can concentrate our thoughts on pews and colors and windows and HVAC units and, and sound systems and screens and, and all of these things. That can be where our mind is. Or we can say, God, we're going to set our mind on the spiritual. We're going to set our mind on the kingdom of God. And we're going to trust you. Yes, we've got to think through things. Yes, we've got to be a people of order. Yes, we've got to make plans. And, and, and we've got to trust God, but also make provision, uh, you know, to take care of things. All of these things. But ultimately, God, we want to be spiritually minded. We want to be master minded. A functional faith walks by that faith and not by the sight that we have. We're master-minded. Secondly, we are mission-minded. Everything we do, we realize that we have a mission. Now, let me just stop there. There is a difference in mission and missions. A while back, somebody came to me and said, Preacher, I'm glad you're into all that kind of stuff, but I'm just not all about this missions stuff. Now, now, first of all, I'm not real sure that you can believe in Jesus and not also have a heart for his missions work. But understand, I'm not just talking about mission trips and, and mission experiences and mission partnerships. But understand, we have a mission. We have been left here on planet Earth. If only our mission was to get to heaven. If every one of us had, a, had an individual mandate mission, get to heaven. Then the moment we were saved, we would be raptured. Christ would take us from this place. He would rescue us. You're, you're mine. Come home, child. Right? I mean, you think about this. If you had a child that was in prison... And they would receive a pardon. You would not leave them in prison. You would say, now you're coming home to my house. 
So why did he leave us here? Why did he leave us in this place that we were once imprisoned and once enslaved and once in bondage so that we might share the gospel and see other prisoners converted? That is our mission. Not just to be a church, not just to go through the motions, not just to look good in the yard when people pass by, but to make a difference in the lives of people by sharing and by uh, implementing the gospel of the Lord. Acts 1.8 says very clearly, but you will be my disciples here, there, and everywhere. Thirdly, master-minded, mission-minded, and then finally we're to be ministry-minded. You see, a functional faith is always looking for ways to minister. Not looking for ways to get something or looking for ways to be entertained or or looking for ways uh, to do any of those things, but looking for ways how can we better minister. I'm thankful I was leaving the Baptist building the other day in Cary and I looked over and there were our two dental buses and I I thought about how every Saturday and and most every Friday those dental buses that, that we own are out across the state literally pulling teeth, filling cavities, um, fixing people's teeth who otherwise would be walking around with hurting teeth. I'm thankful to know that somewhere along the way, somebody came up with the idea of actually ministering to people right inside their mouth. Why? I had a dentist tell me one time, he said, there's nothing like sharing the gospel with somebody in your dental chair. What are they going to do? You know, they can't talk back. They can't get up and run. And they're so glad you're doing something for them physically. They're just liable to listen to what God wants to do for them spiritually speaking, right? All of the things that we are, it should be about ministry. When we think about a larger facility, we need to think, how can we best use this new facility to minister? Not just to keep everybody happy. I was in a church a few weeks ago at a funeral up in Winston-Salem. And man, I don't know where they got their pews from, but those were the fanciest things I'd ever seen. They literally, every place, they had a little headrest. And man, I got in that thing and I thought, I wanted the funeral to last at least three hours just because I was so comfortable, you know. And I thought to myself, if we put those things in Dublin... We wouldn't make it through the call to worship before some of y'all be snoring so loud it'd disrupt the service. But I wonder, somewhere along the way, that group must have gone out and tried out every pew there was and said, aha, this is perfect. This is so comfortable. This is great. Our people will love that. But ultimately, it's not about what we'll be comfortable with and what we'll love. But God, how can we use our facilities? How can we use everything that we have to be more faithful ministers of the gospel of Christ? Let me close. This morning's message has been fairly uh, straightforward and to the point. Asking the question, do we have fictional faith? Do we have functional faith? But may I say to you, the difference is literally life and death. The enemy does not mind us having faith so long as it is fictional. So long as it doesn't have any substance or any guts or any heart. There are two words that kept coming to mind all week long. The first was the word infested. Infested. Now, that's not a very lovely word, is it? Infested. Think about bugs crawling through your cabinets and getting in your cocoa pebbles. That's awful. You know? Nothing worse than a cocoa pebble that's swimming. Right? But infested. How easy it is for a person to become infested with an artificial faith. A faith with no substance, a faith with no heart, a faith that's all about sin and and self and satisfaction and, and I'm okay. A faith that has become more about fire insurance or a get out of hell free pass. Infested. Ah, but then there's another path 
that God would have us choose, and that is to live a life that is invested. It's not about me, and it's not about you, and it's not even ultimately about our church. You know, churches are so threatened by other churches, it seemed, and pastors so threatened by other pastors. But if somehow we would understand that we are the army of God, working together arm in arm, investing ourselves individually and then collectively. Someone asked me this week, they said, I hear you talk a lot about being a Baptist. What is the Baptist State Convention, this thing that you get to be president of for a year? And I said, well, it's 4,300 churches and a couple million people that our intent is that we lock arms together like a rescue team searching through shallow water for the bodies that have gone down. Realizing that if we're not locked together, we'll miss one. Realizing that if we're not bringing our provisions together, we might not survive the hunt. The pathway of life, investing as we pray, as we preach the gospel, as we show patience with lost people, and as we passionately and lovingly pursue them. Here's my question. If you were on trial today, and your faith was the only thing that you had to back you up, and your life to back you up, and the only thing you were on trial for was being a Christian, would there be enough evidence that somebody would look and say, he's guilty? There's no doubt. But more importantly, would you know? Would you know that there's no doubt? Simple question. Think about that old gas pump. Feel free to come by and check it out. Does it work? Nope. It's just for looks.